Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We hope that you're doing well. Uh, In this episode, Aaron is speaking with Angela Parker about her book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I?, which is a very important and timely book, and hope it's um, uh, stimulating for your thinking about this moment in history and um, the way that that intersects with biblical studies. So um, thanks for uh, all, of the, all of you who support us. We couldn't do this without you. So if you'd like to give to OnScript, you can do so, do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. But if that's not in the cards for you right now, uh, we just appreciate you listening and sharing the word with friends, families, neighbors, and um, uh, your uh, associates. Okay, thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall, the University of Oxford. And I'm so glad to welcome Reverend Dr. Angela Parker to OnScript. Dr. Parker is an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University in Atlanta. And she's here today to talk about her challenging and thought-provoking book entitled, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. Angela, we are so glad you're here. Welcome to OnScript. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you, Erin. I'm so excited to be in conversation (laughs) with you, Angela. I can't even, I'm I'm like, I'm so excited to get going with this. So first, this is a deeply personal book for you, clearly. And I know it's an extension of your work in a number of areas of New Testament and um, in womanist hermeneutics. So can you just tell us how this book um, fits into your journey or pulls together those threads of, um, of your story as a New Testament scholar and a womanist scholar? I appreciate that opening question. The book was just, for me, a culmination of conversations and, of course, my own PhD journey. So I think being in conversation with white evangelicals, predominantly here in the United States of America, and then thinking about my own love of Bible why I journeyed to the PhD, and then even how my journey in the PhD program unfolded. That's how everything came together for me beginning the book. And then when I get into the later chapters and talk about the Gospel of Mark or talk about the letter to the Galatians, I'm kind of putting all of that back together as I'm thinking about how I've been trained in biblical scholarship. So just a love of the text, love and conversations with various groups of people, and then the unraveling of my own PhD journey. The unraveling of your PhD journey. Can you say more about that? What's being unraveled and how does it relate to say biblical authority and inerrancy? Sure. It's interesting. I almost said the, almost used a more derogatory word for unraveling, but it's really not, I wouldn't say the PhD, well, part of the PhD journey, yes, but 
going from my master's to my PhD and realizing that once I was in my PhD program, that my master's program had really trained me to be a white male biblical scholar. That's how I begin that first chapter. So in that chapter one, I'm talking about being trained as a white male biblical scholar. And my PhD program was an interesting, well, let me say this. I started my PhD program at Union Theological Seminary, but then transferred to Chicago Theological Seminary. So one thing that I do not address in the book is the transition from a master's program to a PhD program. And so if I had to classify the beginning aspect of my PhD program, I would say that that program was training me to actually engage Bible as a white feminist, but that's not in the book. <laughs> it's It was me realizing that my first endeavor in PhD studies was actually kind of connected to my training as a white male biblical scholar in my master's program. And then it all came together because the the part of the dedication of the book is to my PhD advisor, Singye Yang, who encouraged me to actually be a womanist New Testament scholar. And so as I think about how my journey from the master's into my beginning PhD at Union Theological Seminary and then finishing at Chicago Theological Seminary, all of that just put together for me how incredibly blessed I am to to live in the body that I live in, first of all. And then to think about biblical text, even from my own embodied identity and experience. So that's that's a little bit of other backstory behind the book that got me here today. You have this great subheading on page 15 of your book that I think is so, um, it's just so on point that it, that it bears reading out loud. Um, you say that your theological education was specialized training in crap no one cares about. <laughs> which yes. I just think to put that in print, like, first of all, bravo, that's a, that's a, that's a great line. And it's also, you know, it's a brave thing to put into print, but what <laughs> falls into that category for you? What is this specialized training and crap no one cares about? And, and I think, you know, all joking aside, like, how can we do this better? What, what should theological education look like um, so that we're not training students in specialized crap that no one cares about? Yeah, I'm I actually have to say that I was surprised that my editor kept that in. So I was like, yay. But the interesting thing for me about specialized training in crap no one cares about is the fact that we could do better about how we talk about philosophical thought, how we talk about German idealism, for example, how we talk about existentialism. I think that we can do better as biblical scholars about making the connections between all this European philosophical thought that enters into biblical interpretation. And I did not care about G.W.F. Hegel or I don't know, Heidegger. But when I went back and thought about just their influence in biblical scholarship, I could then make the argument that there 
are a particular influence in biblical scholarship. And so what would be my own influence if I had an opportunity to be a biblical scholar? And so I think the way that we train our PhD students and master's students about how to formulate your questions that are probably still very Hegelian or regarding Heidegger and just thinking about existentialism or whatever other Eurocentric philosophical thought, you know, helps us to think about how you turn those questions into actual lived questions of present day contemporary people. Because one thing I tell students now is that European philosophical thinkers were not thinking about embodied African-American women in the United States in 2022. So how do you formulate questions about the biblical text that don't specifically come from them? So that's how I I rethink the specialized training and crap no one cares about. And how much of that is just theological educators being more intentionally, you know, aware and inclusive of a wider range of voices so that it's not I mean it's not just that there's a hegemony in biblical scholars of Eurocentric thinkers, because clearly there there has been one, um, but but also um, that <laughs> that that very hegemony like it it excludes voices and it also masks the fact that it excludes voices. Exactly. And well, I really go ahead. No, no, no. Finish. You go ahead. I was just going to think about globalism mm. and how we actually get other voices in our syllabi now. We don't end with Hegel. We don't end with pure, authentic culture and a Hegelian ideal. But we think about now, what are the conversations that are coming out from different corners and pockets of the world? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I wonder how it would look different if we, if, you, if we just intentionally were more inclusive all the way through rather than tacking on these global voices, as they so often are, unlike the last week of the syllabus. Now that we've done the real biblical studies, like, let's see what everyone else is saying. And that's just so, it's so wrongheaded because, and, and I think it leaves students with this impression that, like, the really important thing is this thing, as you say, that a lot of them are walking away going, I don't care about this. And the reason they're saying it is because it doesn't relate to their experience. Even if they're, you know, even if they're white men, it might not relate to their experience because they're not, you know, they're not from that time, that place. Those issues aren't, aren't necessarily our issues. Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. And so now my mind is churning on how would we do the conversation between a Hegel and perhaps African Egyptian philosophical thought? And so I think now I'm thinking about what, how to begin to think about other sources of philosophical thinking that actually retune our questions in biblical scholarship. And so I, it almost seems like you have to go back and infuse some of that early Eurocentric thinking with other parts of the world and then begin to say, all right, so if... German scholars are thinking individualistically and uh, scholars in the ancient near or later Near East are, I don't know if that's the proper terminology, but I think I know what I'm trying to say. Thinking about other dynasties, perhaps in Japan or China, or even thinking about African, Egyptian 
philosophical thinking? How would we put all of that together in order to formulate different questions of our biblical text from a particular time period and begin to move it forward? I think that's a great question because I'm still not one who tacks on at the end either. One thing that I do in my initial lecture is just about context of the New Testament. I bring in the axiomite empire as well as a in conversation with the Roman empire to think about how Rome is also, you know, um, trading with parts of the parts of Africa from the South below the, the um, Nile river. And so what does that look like and how you have that interspersing of cultures, even during Jesus's time period or Paul's time period. And so what does that do to change some of your questions about text as well? And we'll get into at least, well, not not that specific question, but your interpretation of Galatians is very culturally bound. And it's not just this sort of nebulous Gentile audience. It's a very specific and concrete Galatian audience, and that changes. But now we're in your classroom, and you have a ground rule in your classroom. Um, you say that one of your ground rules is that you don't permit students to say, the Bible says that that phrase is outlawed in your classroom. So I, I have two questions about this. The first one is, how do students react when you tell them that? Because <laughs> um, I can imagine what my students would say. I'm kind of excited to try it. Uh, <laughs> and and then second, just uh, it's more seriously, what why is that question uh, or that why is the rule important to you, um, and how does it change the dynamics of the classroom? Yes, students normally respond with a little bit of shock, especially since I'm in the Bible Belt of the American South. <laughs> And I have to explain to them that as soon as someone says or utters the word, well, you know, the Bible says, and then they continue to go forward, that they're doing two things. They're using the Bible to shut down an argument that they do not want to have. That's the first thing I notice. Or the second thing is, they're using the Bible says in such a way that they're cherry picking and proof texting without thinking about the actual context of whatever scripture they're about to quote. So if you're going to say something about a text, I require that you quote the text that you quote, well, Matthew 18, 12 says something about church. And so perhaps if we're thinking about church, then we can think about da, 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 da. I'd rather they be specific about what book, chapter, verse they are recalling and instead of saying the Bible says, because I want them to <clears throat> begin to realize that our biblical text is constructed over a number of years. And so when you say the Bible says, you are conflating Genesis to Revelation almost in one time period. And I think that if you are going to be true to the text and true to an actual love and proper engagement with the text, you're going to say Genesis, blah, 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 or Revelation or Isaiah in order to actually sit your, situate your, your argumentation or your conversation in a particular biblical context. And so how do students do with that? Do they, how does it change the dynamic of, of the classroom when they start to do that? Some do it well. Others clam up and it takes them time to warm up because they are usually the ones who are so used to saying it. 
And so they actually have to think a little bit more concretely about why they use particular text in order to make an argument. So, well, the other thing is, I I don't think, (laughs) now I'm chuckling at myself, I don't think I intimidate students, but sometimes I know that I do. And I have to remind myself also that oftentimes I am the first African-American woman to be in front of them teaching them Bible. And there's often a lot of other issues going on in the classroom that compile upon my statement of you can't say the Bible says. So the whole pedagogical experience for me can be interesting. And I think for the student, the first few weeks of the class are jarring, but usually by the end of a semester, a lot of the students who are so used to saying the Bible says have almost gone through a little bit of a transformation to begin to understand why not saying the Bible says becomes important. So dynamically, I have to watch it over a semester, but I've it's always been a fruitful experience, especially with the ones who are so used to saying the Bible says. It's a very fruitful experience to see a change almost of relationship to the biblical text. And by the end of a semester, and even dare I say, by the end of a two or three year program experience with me, it's a lot better. And it's, it's, um, it's a sweet experience for me, particularly. And you're, that's what you're after is changing our relationship to the biblical text in this book. So let's talk about that. Uh, Because what you're probing here are how the doctrines, specifically the doctrines of inerrancy and authority, um, as they have been passed down to you by especially white evangelicalism, um, stifle the breath of black readers of scripture. And perhaps, you know, stifle the breath of all readers of scripture. It's not, it's not just, um, it's not just a, an issue for black readers. It actually hurts everybody, you, mm-hmm. you say clearly in the, in the book a, a number of times. But how did you come to think about inerrancy and authority in those, in those terms? And can you talk then about what, what you see as particularly harmful in those two doctrines as they have been passed down and formulated? That's a great question because oftentimes I'm thinking about how did I get this way? (laughs) And um, I think for me, as we talked about in the beginning, just a little bit of my journey, I grew up on the knee of Bible in family and in church. There's a story in my own family origin about how when I was a baby, I would not wet a diaper while the pastor was preaching. It was only after the the call to the invitation to the church had been made that I would finally wet a diaper. And for me, there's always been a deep love of biblical text. And even in my own life, a belief in the inerrancy and the, the infallibility of the Bible. That was there for me for a number of years. 
And it was only after reading Corinthians, I want to say first Corinthians at one point in my life when I was still married to my first husband and wrestling with my own ability to preach and teach as a woman. Now I have not, I had not gone to seminary at this time. I was married, young married wife with children, but God had gifted me with the ability to teach and preach in church. So I'm a licensed minister, but I'm not ordained yet. And I was wrestling with, should I even be doing this? Should I be licensed? Should I be ordained? Should I, 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 I'm not supposed to have these abilities to be able to preach and teach. And I remember specifically in prayer, asking God to take it away. It's useless if it doesn't work in this body. And the Holy Spirit specifically says to me, do not let your gifts fall into the grave. And at that moment, I was like, all right, okay, this is what we do. And we're doing this for life. And if we're going to do it, we're going to do it all out. So there is this spirit versus what actually works in theory and on the ground that is at play for me. And so the doctrine of inerrancy and the doctrine of infallibility, the way that the arbiters of power over the Bible have used it over women, over Black folk, over a number of different groups, just did not seem to make sense based on my own lived experience as a preaching woman. And I got to the point where I said, you know what? I can't argue with folks all the time about my own calling. I just have to do. And so the book for me is trying to wrestle with how I understand biblical authority that's not connected to this white supremacist authority that I talk about that I think feeds into the doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility that then allows those doctrines to be used to place limits on people as we just try to figure out how to love God in better ways. And you specifically reframe authority as something that's conversational. So what do you mean by conversational authority? I found this so life-giving, Angela. So thank you just that for framing it in the way that you did, because as you're as you're talking about your experience, I'm nodding along because I've had, you know, I've had those experiences where that's exactly how inerrancy and infallibility have you been used, you know, at me as a woman training for not even for preaching ministry, which I um, as a seminary student, I didn't even feel like I could ever do that because it just wasn't a thing that I thought women did. Um, but having students say, well, I, I understand why you come to that conclusion, but I'm going to teach what the Bible says. Like, I still remember that, oh, that wow. phrase. And I, and I think about that every time I step into a classroom <laughs> um, in a positive way now, like it, it, it encourages me vocationally to model differently. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but like you're reframing this whole paradigm of how we think about infallibility um, and inerrancy, and and you reframe authority as conversational, and it's just it's such a life giving thing. So, what do you mean by conversational authority, and what does that look like then in practice? I think for me, 
going back and rereading some of some of other scholars that we know and love who think about authority in a different way as um well I'll think I'll talk about my own doctoral advisor. This is it Chicago, not the one training me to be a white feminist. <laughs> but she talked about how thinking about the biblical text was a way of looking at someone pointing a finger to the moon. And so someone's pointing to the moon, but you're not looking at their finger that's pointing to the moon. You follow the guide of the finger that points to the moon. So the finger doesn't become the moon, but the finger points to the moon. And thinking about conversations with the biblical text actually helps me think about how I have a conversation with a finger that points me to the moon. So the Bible does not become God. The Bible points me to God. And so I can then have a conversation about how biblical authority is not inerrant or infallible authority, but it's just an authority that's pointing me to God so I can have a conversation with the text. But it also comes from the idea of law and authority under um, Roman senatorial authority as well. That even when Romans are thinking about authority of people over a Senate, they're not thinking about having complete authority rule or authoritarianism, but they're talking about how authority is actually conversation with things that have gone before and thinking about what could be in the future. And so when I think about biblical authority, I'm still trying to play with how we have conversation with the text that we think about what's come before, how the early Israelites navigated their relationship with God, as we think about how we contemporary, how contemporary folks navigate their relationship with God. And so that allows me not to think about a one-to-one correspondence between the ancient Israelites and our present day system, but to think about how do we actually engage and think about our relationship with God as this particular book points us to God. So that's how I'm trying to think about authority from those two different scenarios. And let's see then what what this looks like in practice in, say, your your reading of Mark, because you give this wonderful reading of Mark 15, um, 40 through 47, which I'm going to read um, quickly just to refresh our memories. But what, what you're pointing out here is the, the gazing of the women at the cross after the death of Jesus. Um, so I'm just going to read this uh, and then and then we can we can talk about this this reading that you give. Mark 15, 40 through 47. There were also women looking on from a distance or gazing from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. These used used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. 
When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning a centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth, and taking the body down, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the uh, door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. So you entitled your reading of this passage, Sight After Gaslighting. Yes. Which, again, is just a great turn of phrase, because I think, um, at least I had never thought about um, gaslighting in Mark. So what do you what do you mean by gaslighting? Um, and where do you see this gaslighting occurring in Mark's gospel? Let's start there. Sure. So gaslighting is the idea that when people who have been microaggressed against the person who does the microaggressing then says to them, that wasn't your experience. And they try to make the microaggressed person reframe the experience that they've had and to sort of explain away someone's experience. And as I read the Gospel of Mark and also read various commentators about the women at the end of the Gospel of Mark, you can often read how these women in a lot of history of scholarship where they were considered fallible disciples or not disciples all the way till the end because they were watching from afar. And you see commentators explaining away why they did not get closer to Jesus during the crucifixion or why they did not actually approach Joseph of Arimathea and help him with the burial of their leader and their beloved Messiah. And as I was reading and finding just how to reframe these women in a contemporary light, I just kept thinking about how people still try to explain away others' experiences. And I just felt like there was a common connection there. So reading the women in Mark 15, I'm playing with what they're seeing with Joseph of Arimathea, that they're seeing a privileged man being able to do something that they are not necessarily able to do. And how do we reading so many years later, capture that that experience, so to speak. And so for me, I'm reading these women and I'm thinking about a lot of other women who are often told, well, that's not what you really saw. Or you had as much right or privilege to do something, but you just did not do it. Or whatever we continue to say to women, especially women in churches. And I just really wanted to think about them more 
in a, a better light regarding what they are experiencing as women in a highly charged testosterone environment. Because let's face it, the crucifixion is being run by military, by soldiers. So that's a highly charged testosterone environment. And what happens when women get too close to highly charged testosterone environments? They run the risk of of being abused, violated. And so you have to think about how are we navigating just the ways that people talk about women in the text and then talk about women in today's context and almost make us feel as though everything that we see or the potential of what could happen to us is wrong. That's what I'm trying to get at in this chapter. Yeah, and and you definitely do. So if you are listening to this and you are thinking, gosh, should I go read uh, Angela's book in this section? You absolutely should. Like this chapter was, I think, just a really... Um, important way of reframing this. Because um, I think the other thing that stuck out to me is that you you, you uncover the, the, our, t- our own tendency to sort of blame women, to blame victims, um, of whether it be of systemic issues like um, not going to get the body. That's, a, that's not just a choice that they're making. There's a whole system in play. And yes. I, I thought that was such an important, um, just an important insight. And then um, I think the other thing that I thought was so powerful about this is that just that the sense of empathy that your reading creates for these women and what it must have been like to stand um, sort of powerlessly by and watch um, this, you know, this powerful man who may or may not have been a follower of Jesus um, right. be granted the body um, mm-hmm. sort of with just be able to enter that, that space, that male space. Um, yeah. I just, yeah, I thought that was absolutely, absolutely spot on. And I think I it just shows. <laughs> yeah. But it just shows the importance of, of bringing this, um, this woman, this lens to the text. Um, it's not just that it, you know, it pushes against historical criticism, which it absolutely does. But then what, what it replaces, you know, um, is this really life-giving, important reading of the text. That's just, I thought just really profound. So, um, I, that's more than I usually talk during interviews, Angela. I got, <laughs> I got excited. Um, I appreciate so, that though. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's do a speed round. Ready for a speed mm-hmm. round? We'll change. Yes, we'll change. I'm ready um, for a speed round. <laughs> okay. Excellent. The rules of the speed round are just that you say whatever, uh, comes into your head without much reflection, uh, and you don't have to defend your answers and you just say what you think. And, uh, and we go really fast. All right. <laughs> It's really, it's really technical. I'm not Um, scared at all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I ask scary questions. Maybe I do. I don't think so though. Okay. First one. Uh, What food tastes most like home to you? Macaroni and cheese. Oh, I think my husband would say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you believe in ghosts? Yes. Do you have any hidden talents? No, I wish I did. I always wanted to paint and I always felt like I always wanted to paint and sing. And I think, I think God was like, no, you don't need those gifts. (laughs) Uh, What's one thing you wish all your students knew? I'm not that scary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you can have them listen to the podcast. Yeah, I will. (laughs) I'm not that scary. I'm really not. Yeah. I hear you with that. Um, 
what book in biblical studies or theology has been the most formative for you as a scholar? Hmm. There should be a book that comes to mind. You know what? I know where I'm going to go. Katie Geneva Cannon. Katie's Cannon. Hmm. What's a trend in society that scares you? Christian nationalism. Mountains or ocean? Oh, both, because I lived in Seattle for four years. So we oh. had Mount Rainier and then we had Puget Sound. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've never asked that to a person who lived in Seattle before. Right? You can't like, separate the two. It's an impossible choice. See, yeah, I've only ever lived in the mountains or on the coast. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And now I live by neither, which is odd. Which is so sad, isn't it? But there's lots of water here. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Um, If you were to get a PhD in another field, what would it be? Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the response. We don't need more training in crap that nobody cares about. Right. my goodness. <laughs> wow. If anything, probably something having to do with life skills or life coaching. I don't know if they give a PhD in life coaching, but I feel like that's what I would need. That's the only thing I would ever consider doing, like help helping other people try to figure out their lives, but not psychology. I don't want to do that. No. Yeah. I just feel like I need someone with a PhD in life coaching to help me figure out my own stuff. Well, it's probably me too. That's why that's the only thing I would consider. See, this is how I ended up in Bible. I had to figure out my own stuff and it took me so long. I I got an advanced degree. I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So getting getting back to the book, um, in your chapter on full-throated faith, which is uh, an exegesis or a reading of Galatians, uh, you make a, a number of really interesting points, but one of the central ones is that faith for Paul is not a univocal concept. So what do you mean by that? What do you mean that it's not an univocal concept? And then um, how does this view of faith as sort of multivalent, um, how does that help us read Paul's letters? That's a great question. It's actually the subject of book number two for me, because we have, I think, in society, specifically American society, we have this idea of faith being some kind of creedally based statement or stance. And I think that faith in Paul can be a number of things that you you have this idea of, yes, um, almost like intellectual acceptance of something. But I believe that faith in Paul is also embodied and particular to a a walk as well. So faith is something that not just takes up residence in your mind, but takes up residence in your body as well. So the things that we do on our body actually do reflect our faith. But I'm also thinking about another way of faith, and and I think it's this idea of the faith that Jesus had as well that allows us to really take up in our bodies the faith that Jesus had. And I talk about Jesus having a, a particular type of faith that makes us want to walk in a certain way that we walk each other home. So I'm playing with 
the faith of Jesus. I'm playing with the believer's faith in Jesus, but I'm also playing with the believer's reflection of the faith of Jesus within their own bodies. And you make the point that actually there's there's different expressions. Like there's there's just like there's diversity within Paul's audience of, in Galatia um, versus his audience in Corinth um, that we need to kind of hold um, that faith can can be diverse in a sense. And I and you didn't get into that too much in the book. So I just wonder if you could sort of contrast or play with that idea of like what's what does the expression expression of faith look like in Corinth that you see it as. Um, you know, a different um, expression, complementary expression to faith or faithfulness in Galatians? Yes, great question. You're actually helping me write book number two. Thank you. (laughs) I think when I think about Corinth, and this actually plays into why I don't allow students to say the Bible says, because I think in Corinth, you have a different way of faith developing that I would argue, even though some would argue that Galatian, Galatia faith is rooted in eschatology, it seems to me that Corinth faith is probably more rooted in eschatological thinking or thinking towards the end or thinking towards some kind of completion as if they already have everything that they need. And so their faith is playing out differently in Corinth as it is in Galatia. And it's, for me, I think a situational difference between how you walk in faith when you are in a different society based on the Galatia people who are walking in a faith that's based almost in or connected to how you may be a lesser person in society. So there are different ways that I think faith plays out in different scenarios of embodiment based on where you are. And I think you can make the the argument that people, contemporary, contemporary people play out their faith in different ways based on where they are as well. Growing up in a predominantly Black Christian faith tradition, I'm going to be more extemporaneous and a little bit more ecstatic, but if I'm visiting with a friend in a predominantly white context or a very quiet context, (laughs) I'll I'll try to be a little bit less exuberant. (laughs) Hear me say try. But I think it's out of thinking or respect for ways that people are playing out their faith in their particular context. There's probably more that I can say to that, but I'm still playing. But we'll look forward to the next book. It sounds like. Thank you. That's great though. So you, you do spend a fair amount of time about a bit of time discussing this uh, Galatian identity in, um, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, And it's not this, like I said, it's not this nebulous sort of Gentile, identity and then the you know the agitators come in and they stir up these gentiles there's a really specific and concrete group of people you have in mind can you talk about um who these galatians are and why um why that matters for how we read this letter yes 
Well, I think one thing that's always interesting to me is when I'm reading Bible with students and I often ask, well, where do you place yourself in the text? Where do you see your body in the text? And, you know, oftentimes they're the disciples or they're Peter or they're Paul or they're somebody. And I'm just like, okay, cool. And I read this text and I, I think about the notion of the dying Galatian. And I play with the phrase, the only good Galatian is a dead Galatian. And thinking about how through some of the history of Galatia with the Roman Empire, what that looked like for Galatian people to be almost the ubiquitous less than in a society, then that allows me to think about other folks in society who are considered less than or considered the only dead blank is a, the only good blank is a dead blank and you can fill in the blank. And so when I ask where you place yourself as you read the text, that's one thing I do in my own reading when I'm in my own personal devotional reading and thinking about biblical text and thinking about, okay, what does this mean for my life? And for the Galatian people, I just see them as trying to attain a status through circumcision, through keeping kosher or through, you know, observing the Jewish holidays, the Jewish high days in such a way that they're trying to almost become Jewish so that they can almost get a better position in society. And so then I have to think about, all right, well, how how do others in society do similar things in contemporary ways and thinking about assimilation or thinking about how, you know, some folks <laughs> thinking about um, my daughter working at a job and I go to her job and ask for her through a, a, a speaker and the people say, yeah, Ebony, some white woman's asking for you. <laughs> Like, I'm really African-American, but okay, sometimes I may sound white. Who knows? Just the ways that we think about how people assimilate in society. So that's how I'm thinking about the Galatian people and then beginning to read the Galatian text in a very different way. And as you're thinking about that, then you point out that... um, you think that Paul's portrayal of himself as an enslaved person, as a birthing um, mother, that's that's problematic for you. Yes. Um, can you say more about why that is? Well, it seems to me as though Paul is almost co-opting other people's experiences. And when you liken yourself to an enslaved person, but have never felt that bodily experience of being enslaved, or you liken yourself to a birthing mother, but never felt that experience, it almost seems as though you're taking away other people's experiences. Other people's very much lived experiences without benefit of really understanding what that experience is. And that can be problematic. And it's always fascinating to be in different conversations with people in a church setting or on a lecture, and someone will always ask, well, what would you want Paul to do? If you had to tell Paul how to do better, what would you tell him to do? And I'd say, oh, Lord. Um, And I usually frame it as, well, if 
I had a person in my class who's preaching to other people. I would just tell them, be mindful of taking on other people's experiences without actually living those experiences. How do you represent other people in such a way that you actually know a little bit more about their experiences before co-opting them or flattening someone else's experience? Think about where we are today in the world where, you know, many laws are being made for other people without the 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 lawmakers understanding the bodily experiences of the people that they're making laws for. I think you can say the same thing when you're reading text. How are you careful that you do not co-opt other people's experiences? I think I think I want to come back to this notion of of making it home because that becomes the the paradigm for for your reading of Galatians and um and so and you connect this making it to make it home is um Toby Wigway's song um and in the book you say okay reader put down the book and go watch the YouTube video of Toby Wigway's make it home and then come back and then we can, you know, we can keep going. So I'm going to say the same thing, um, not just so that you have a context for this conversation, but because this song is amazing. And you, if you haven't seen it, you just you need to stop the interview. You need to go to YouTube and you need to watch this video um, of uh, Toby Wigway's song, Make It Home. And I'll even link it on our, our OnScript page. And actually, when you're done with that, then go watch the live version because uh, I the first the the, the studio vis- uh, version is amazing, but the live version I, it's like oh it's just it's it's out of this world in terms of just its message and then also its musicianship. Yeah, sorry, I'm thank you for out. bringing that up. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but like as a musician, I just just oh it was it was just it was such a moving piece of music to listen to, um, for so many reasons. So, um. I want to think that you're going to do that, dear listeners. But if you don't, um, Angela, can you just summarize for us what this song Make It Home is about? Um, and then um, what what about the song speaks to Galatians for you or helps you think with Galatians? Yes. One of the lyrics from the song talks about, please don't make me a hashtag or a slogan. And... As you think about particularly black and brown bodies that fall as a result of police violence and what it means for black and brown families to see their loved ones fall as a result of police violence. I'm I'm imagining now in my brain, the body of Michael Brown laying in Ferguson for four hours and coupling that vision with the dying gall vision and the Galatian people just almost remembering their loved ones who they did not want to become a hashtag or a slogan, but I know of course Galatians would not have hashtags or slogans, but the dying gall was propaganda. And for the song make it home please don't make me a hashtag or slogan is almost that same idea and so for all of us who just follow a nappy-headed dark jesus in our faith walk and we just want all of our families our loved ones our sons to make it home 
that's what hits for me because I'm also a black mama who had conversations with her, her son when he begins driving about how to survive if you're pulled over by police. And one thing that's always important for me is being in conversation with like-minded Jesus followers who don't flatten that experience of a Black mother telling her Black son what to do in order to make it home. And don't say, well, you you know, your son should do this or your son, your son should pull up his pants or your son should, you know, talk proper King's English or no, have a little bit of empathy for what a large number of Black mothers are going through. And that's how we make it home. And that's how we actually become people in solidarity with one another and actually become a body of Christ. A body of Christ doesn't gaslight the other part of the body to say, oh, it's it doesn't matter, or that's not your experience. But being a body of Christ resists that gaslighting and and actually wants to be a part of the people that help each other make it home. So that's why that song becomes important for me. And you're connecting it specifically to Paul's instruction to bear one another's burdens. Um, so we fulfill the law. In that way, you fulfill the law of Christ, which is an interesting phrase. doesn't occur very often in, <laughs> in the New Testament. Um, and I think... Uh, white folks have their work to do. And it's not, um, I don't want to assume that it's your job to tell white folks uh, the work that we need to do because we've, you know, we've put ourselves in this, um, we've created this problem and it's not black folks job just to solve it for us. Um, that being said, I, I really value um, this perspective. So if you could say to white folks what, what it takes for white folks to help black folks make it home in the context of the body of Christ, what would you want to say to your white brothers and sisters who are like-minded in this way? I've been playing with the language of race traitor lately because the language of allyship has become problematic sometimes where allyship is, oh, I retweeted or I posted on Facebook this, that, or the other. I think that almost the idea of race traitorship has to occur where actually thinking about white privileges and actually trying to disown them and having hard conversations with your own family, friends, and cousins about these knotty, thorny issues is what I would hope people would do. I can't go to Thanksgiving dinner in Kentucky with your uncle. I don't want to go to Thanksgiving dinner in Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) Can't, can't and won't. Can't and won't. (laughs) You shouldn't have to. I don't have Thank an uncle you. in Kentucky. Just to just to clarify, no, no, no it's not. Yeah, that but, was a random. But I hear what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> and have those hard conversations, especially in contexts where there aren't a lot of black folk too. Because you know, we can I can go into some neighborhoods where there are no black folk and just be like, wow, this is interesting and amazing. But I wouldn't stay in there long. You know. 
I think that's part of it. (laughs) And off the rails right there. (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. I guess, I mean, equally, you don't see, you don't see white folks taking the, I mean, white people do not like to be uncomfortable in different cultural spaces. You don't see, you don't see that happening. And yet we expect people of color to do it all the time. Yes. You know, to come into our spaces and be where we're comfortable to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so, I'm speaking to myself because I'm so convicted of that. But, um, but this reframing of make it home, it, it, you know, it's not just, it's not just for black folks. It's for, you know, like that's, that's on me. Um, yes. That's on us. Cause it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a question that your son makes at home, but it is. Exactly. So we just sort of answered my last question. I always kind of ask, like, what's your hope for this book? <laughs> As my final question of the interview. So if you just want to say anything else, like, what's what's your hope for this book going forward as, as, as it goes out into the world and makes its mark? I think as it goes out into the world and makes its mark, I do hope that we have this ability to be with one another where we do endeavor for all of us to make it home, that we don't live in the comfort of just staying in our silos or the comfort of not asking these hard questions that we have been asking throughout this book and throughout this conversation, which I'm very grateful to be having again with you, Erin. I also hope that, especially for women and people of color who have been holding their breaths in these spaces where we find ourselves, where we are the only one, that we find people in that space who allow us to breathe, that we find people who don't continuously make us hold our breath, and that we have some really good conversations and and actually make friends as we go forward. Because I'm also about that, making friends, having good contacts, and just knowing good people who are just trying to live this world, live in this world, and live this faith of Jesus in such a way that we make a difference in the world. That's my hope. On Scribble listeners, that's all the time we have to, for today. Uh, We've been speaking with Reverend Dr. Angela Parker about her excellent book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I?, which was published by Erdman's in 2021. Angela, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. And when you finish this next book, you have to come back on and we'll talk more about about these readings of the New Testament. And Onscript listeners, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.